Hi, and welcome to this week's edition of the Ocean View Podcast. No matter where you're at in our country or around the world, we thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Now sit back and enjoy this week's message. Good morning, everybody. I was just telling some of the band members as they were exiting the stage, I was like, you guys cannot sing that song right before I'm going to go preach. Oh, I'm a sopping mess back there. My name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to welcome you, especially if it's your first time. Uh, Thanks for being a part of our church this week. We are wrapping up a message series. So if you're new, don't worry. I'm going to catch you up to speed. But what we've been talking about is uh, this message called Blood, Mud, and Mustard Seed. And it's this idea that, that Jesus Christ performed many miracles. And this alludes to some of the miracles that he created. And what we said is, is when we look at the totality of all the miracles, was Jesus trying to say something deeper? Was he trying to go uh, at the 40,000-foot flyover level? Was it beyond just the moment? And, and we all kind of discover as we go through all these miracles that really he is speaking to the essence of faith. And he's trying to teach an overarching message about about our faith, and, and we've been recapping every week the keys that we've been learning, and we've been giving a key to growing our faith each and every week. So if you're brand new, let me kind of catch you up. In week one, we took a look at the miracle uh, about a father who had a son um, who for many years was inflicted with a demon possession. And it's in Mark chapter 9. It's an incredible story, heartbreaking story of a father willing to do anything and everything for their son. And I know if you're a parent in this room, that meant a lot to us because there's not anything we wouldn't do for our children. And especially when we feel like we're helpless, um, there is a message in that miracle and that message, that key to growing our faith was when you feel like giving up, hold on. When you feel like giving up, when things seem insurmountable, when it just is too difficult, just hold on. And it was a great story that that miracle spoke to that. And then Pastor Aaron in week two, he talked about the the miracle where there was an individual that was healed by a little bit of mud and saliva. And it was just a little weird. It was like mud. Jesus made mud and he put it on him and healed him. But if you remember in that story, he went around and there were a lot of voices speaking into him. And what we said about our faith is, is that who we listen to matters. That in our faith, if we want to grow our faith, that we have to be, we have to be mindful of the voices that we're listening to and, and who is encouraging us toward the truth. You know, I, I say in our church all the time that, that it, it's important that you never as a Christian choose sides. Because really the truth is it's not about one individual or another individual. It is it's the side of truth. It's the side of righteousness. And so as, as believers and followers of Jesus, if we can focus on what is the truth, and allow the truth to be the side that we choose at all times, that no matter what voice we hear, we will always be pointed and we will always grow in our faith. And then last week, it was, it was just a powerful, powerful story of two individuals at a simultaneous miracle. We have a woman that was hemorrhaging for years, 12 years, and then we had a man who worked for a synagogue and their daughter was dying and died and it was 12 years old. And we saw Jesus come in and meet them both, not just at their expectation, but we learn the key to our faith is always in everything that Jesus exceeds the limits of our expectations. That whenever we think, God, this is all I think you can do, we always have to raise it a level because Jesus is always going to surprise us. In other words, we always leave room for God to move, even in the darkest of moments. And today, we're going to teach our last key to growing our faith through another miracle that we're going to unpack. To kick this off, um, my last car was a, an Acura um, a TL, and it was 16 years old. It had a lot of wear and tear on it. And I used to park in my driveway, 
And my wife, God bless her, she has a lot more wisdom than I do. And so I, w- I would pull into the driveway, and we had a basketball hoop for my son. And it was one of those portable ones where you fill it up with water, and it just kind of sits there, and, and uh, it was up. And my wife would tell me all the time, I don't understand why you park your car right underneath that basket. Like, are, do, you, do you not think that at one point that it could fall? I'm like, no, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine. I mean, it's, it's stable. The manufacturer says, you know, it's like an elephant can't knock it over or something like that. It's going to be fine. So I remember one night, um, you know, she had said the week earlier, she goes, hey, I know you keep saying that thing's not going to fall, but have you checked the water level in it? Like, yeah, sure, 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 fine, fine, fine. So I remember pulling into my driveway, literally, it's one of those moments where I got to where I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm par- I park, and I'm looking to the side, and I see the pole right next to me, and I'm like, hmm, you know, maybe I should just pull up a little bit more. But, but you know, then you have that moment where you're like, oh, gosh, I got to get back, I open my door, I got to get back in the car, I got to start it, I got to pull up, it's going to be fine. So I go ahead and I go inside. The next morning, it was a a Saturday morning, and the next morning our neighbor's son, who's 12 years old, he comes over. And uh, usually he comes over, he wants to know, my son wants to play basketball. So he came over and he rings the doorbell and I come in and I open the door and he has this look on his face. And I'm about to say to him, Connor is sleeping still, He, he can't come over. But he looks at me with these eyes this big and he doesn't say a word, he just goes, And he points to the driveway, and I look out, and there's the basketball hoop leaning on my car. Nice, big, huge dent in the back, and I'm just sitting there going, oh, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I move that car forward? And then the Holy Spirit said, I told you you should have moved the car. The Holy Spirit sometimes is your wife. You know, that's, you know, she played that role. She said that. So the point is, is that I think in our life, not only in those circumstances, but in our faith, I think we do the same thing. Isn't it true that at times we feel a nudge of the Holy Spirit, God, in us and saying certain things, and we think to ourselves, nah, that's not that big a deal. Eh, no, 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 not right now, God. Eh, it'll be okay. And really the Holy Spirit is trying to nudge us. And what does Jesus have to say about those moments? Because I think sometimes a lot of us go through that, but today we're going to look at a miracle where Jesus is going to speak directly to this. And we're going to see an example of what we need to do within those moments. So let me give you some background. For those of you that are new to Christianity or maybe you're not a Christian and you're leaning in online or in the balcony or on the floor, let me give you some context. When Jesus came to the earth, he began in small circles, right? He began by revealing some of his power to certain individuals. And then he gathered those individuals, the disciples and some of the others. He gathered them together and then he would go and he would perform the works of God in front of them. And they'd be amazed. And he would always tell the people, now go, but don't tell anybody. Because he wanted to keep the circle small on purpose. And then after rumors and after people started talking, then he empowered the disciples and they sent them out two by two. And then they began to do the works of God and point them back to Jesus. And so all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people started talking about Jesus. This was by plan. So we move from a ministry that began with a few that all of a sudden then expanded to hundreds and now Jesus is about to change things because up until this point he's been teaching in parables and he's been telling stories and the disciples just give you insight. Here's Jesus over here and the disciples are all by a fire and they're over here they're like, you know, is he the son of God? Is he, you know, are we going to take over Rome? Are we going to take over Jerusalem? Is Jesus going to, you know, point us in charge? What's going to happen here? They had no idea what the end game was. And Jesus now is going to begin to speak directly to the disciples and transition his ministry and tell them exactly what he plans to do. Now, why am I telling you this? Because this sets up the miracle that we're about to see. So I want you to picture there's a mountain, and it's called Mount Tabor. And now, yes, Mount Tabor. And then Jesus is hanging out with his disciples, and he's about to head up this mountain. 
But as he discusses, this is the interaction between him and Peter. Take a look at this, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days he will rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So pause. For the first time, Jesus says, the Son of Man, me, I'm going to be rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to raise up in three days. So Peter hears this. If you don't know Peter, Peter is zealous. Peter is passionate. Peter just, he sometimes speaks without thinking. We're going to see that in just a second. And all of a sudden, Peter is standing there, and watch what he does. Peter then took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. Now, pause. Imagine Peter sitting here, and all of a sudden, Jesus is sitting there, and, like, and Peter's like, mm, master, mm, rabbi, what? And then all of a sudden, he sees the disciples all starting to go, what does he mean? What is he talking about? What's going to happen? What are we going to do? And so Peter then, deciding, well, you know, I understand things here, he grabs Jesus, said, Jesus, master, come over here, rabbi, come here, come here, come here. Hey, I, I appreciate that you're talking about these things, and I really don't understand what this means right here, but you know what? I'm looking around, and, and you know, Jesus, you got to know the room, okay? Because right now, the disciples are panicking a little bit. We need to calm this down, and so you need to stop talking like that. Jesus, stop talking like that. Like, I know what you need, Jesus. I'm a little bit smarter than you. I know the plan. You don't know the room, but you got to stop talking like that. Now, that's, in that paraphrase, what really happened. Now, watch what Jesus does in that moment. He says this, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, it's almost like Jesus looked at Peter and then went, he then said this to Peter. He rebuked him. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. For many of you, you've quoted that scripture or you knew that was in the Bible, but you didn't know the context, now you know. Jesus looked at his brother, Peter, who passionately was trying to help him, and said, you need to step back. In essence, what he was saying is, Peter, right now, your desire is for what's in front of your eyes, where my desire comes from a heart that is in love with his father. And so you have to put aside what you see, and so stand behind me, Satan, because you're gonna try to tempt every single one to hold on to what they have. But my father has a greater plan, and it's confusing, and I get it, but you have to have faith to trust in my father's plan. And so that sets this up. And so Peter's sitting there going, I don't understand this. I just got a tongue lashing. The disciples come around Peter, like, what is he meaning? What's he doing? And then Jesus does this. He says, all right, guys, here's what's going to happen. Disciples, I want you to go around the other side of Mount Tabor. We're going to meet you there. Peter, James, and John, you're going to come with me, and we're going to go up Mount Tabor. There's something that I must do. Now, for those of you who don't know the Bible, Peter, James, and John was his inner circle. They were like his friends. However, what you need to understand is there was a reason why Jesus just took Peter, James, and John with him. Because Jesus knew there's a miracle that's about to happen. And in Jewish law, which we've learned as a church, right? In Jewish law, we must have at least two witnesses to be able to confirm that something has happened. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain so that way it could be documented and also to show them. And then he's going to meet the others on the other side. But let's see what happens on the mountain. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. By the way, if you ever wonder what this mountain looks like, this is Mount Tabor right here. Now, this is not in my notes, but I just want to share this with you. I've been to this mountain about four times, 
And the only way up to the top of this mountain right now is a zigzaggy road. You see that little zigzag on the right-hand side? I get car sick. And back in the day, the only way up this was in a car, like with four or five seats, and a driver that is going about 60 miles an hour, and it is literally one and a half lanes wide, and there's another car coming right at you. How in the world they let, I have no idea, but let's just say every time I go to Mount Tabor, I think of two things. I think of how beautiful and majestic and amazing the top is, and I think about nausea. I'm just saying. That's not in the notes. Doesn't really do anything for you, but I just figured I'd share it with you. Anyway, moving on. There, on top of the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This is where it gets interesting. You ready? And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Now, if you're new to Christianity, here's what happens. Many of us, we know this story, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is transformed. We know this story. However, here's what happens. We say, oh, yeah, Moses and Elijah hung up there. It was great. We have no idea why that is. None. Well, today you're going to learn. And it's powerful. It's very powerful. So lean in for just a second because it's going to make really good sense in just a second. So here they are, Pete, James, and John. They're with Jesus. They're up there, and all of a sudden, Jesus is transformed to white. And all of a sudden, here, boom, there's Moses. Boom, there's Elijah. Whoa, what just happened? You need to understand, Moses, to the Jewish people, represented the law of God. Moses was a leader of God's people that God appointed. He gave the Jewish people the law. He transcribed the law. He judged over the law. He always went to God for it. And so to the Jewish people, Moses represented the law. Elijah was different. Elijah, amazing prophet, did amazing things on earth. God took him to be with him. And it says in scripture that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will appear. Now, what you need to know is Elijah was manifested in the body, the personhood of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was put on this earth, and he was there in the Jordan River, and he was the one who said, behold, the Messiah, and he baptized Jesus. So Elijah is represented by the person calling out the Messiah to come. So there's significance in Moses. Now, think about it. Moses, the law. Elijah, the one calling before Jesus, and then Jesus Christ standing up here. It was overwhelming to Peter, James, and John. It was absolutely incredible, and I love this, and I want you to see this. Now, watch what happens. If you and I were up on that mountain and we were, like, saw all this happen, we'd be like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? And we'd be, like, standing off in the distance, and I'd be looking at, you know, Jim and John, and I'd be like, if I was Peter, I'd be like, what, what's, what's happening? And there was an awkward silence. You ever been in those meetings where all of a sudden there's, like, an awkward pause are you the person that feels like you have to fill that awkward pause with words? That's me. You know, it's like, you know, like, hey, you know, how are you? That's a nice hat. And it really looks ugly, but you're just using words. I'm just saying. If you're wearing a hat, I apologize. I'm not seeing you really. I'm not. So Peter is there, and he's sitting there, and he fills this awkward silence, and watch what he says. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, this is good. It's really good to be up here. I'll tell you what, Jesus, let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were all so frightened. So why did he say this? This is good. This is really good. If you like history, you're going to really understand this. So Peter defaults. He goes through, what am I going to say? Like, I don't know. All right, let's say it's good, and then let's build three shelters. Why would he say that? Well, what Peter was doing is, is he was referring to a festival that the Jewish people celebrate on a continuous basis. It's a seven-day festival called the Festival of 
the shelters or tabernacles. And what it means is, is it represents, if you have a Jewish friend or if you're Jewish and you're here today, welcome, we're excited, you're a brother, we're really, really excited that you're here. What they do is, is during this festival for seven days, they build a structure, a sukkul, and that structure is in their backyard. And they build it temporarily for seven days. And the command is, and the law, and the Jewish you know, law and commands of the rabbis, is that they are to spend as much time as possible in the sukkah. So as families, they eat dinner there, they, they hang out there, and they sit for seven days under this temporary shelter. Why? Why would they do that? What does this represent? Well, it's very interesting. God delivered the Jewish people from Egypt. And when he brought them into the desert... They all thought they're going to the promised land really quickly, but you know what happens, you know, wrong left turn at Albuquerque, and you know what happens. And so they're all there, and they're kind of confused, and they're wandering around the desert for 40 years, and then all of a sudden, God shows up at every single point of the way when they have need. He provides food where there was no food. He provides direction where there is. He provides protection. And so what the festival of shelters or tabernacles is, it's just a reminder for the Jewish people that while they were in the desert, which is not God's ultimate plan, remember it was the promised land, but while you're in the valley, while you're in the shelter, this is where you lean in, while you're in the desert, you need to remember that you are under the embrace of our heavenly Father, that you are under the protection and the love and the care of our heavenly Father. So the Jewish people celebrate every year, seven days, the reminder that God is with us even in the most difficult of circumstances. It's powerful. And so all of a sudden, here's Peter, James, and John, and they're up on here, and Peter says, this is incredible, mountaintop, amazing, I love it. And watch what Peter's thinking. I have to imagine he's thinking, we've arrived. Why should we leave? Why should we move? This is exactly where we need to stay, under God's embrace. Well, the truth of the matter is, I think a lot of us, we fall into two different camps. I think there are some of us like this experience where maybe Peter's, Peter's thinking this is the best that it can be. You know, when the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, I said, that's it, I could die and go to heaven. It ain't gonna get any better than this. This is incredible. And we have those moments, right, where we're just like, no, I just don't want it to change. I want this. But we're gonna see in a second that that's not good. And then there's some of us that we get so far on the opposite side where we're so shattered, we're so broken, that we're ready to give up on our faith because you know what, it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. And you're struggling. And if that's you as well, that's not good either. If you're a note taker, I want you to write this down because it's really important as we continue to talk about the keys to growing our faith. Because for some of us in this room, we need to remember that when the desire in front of us outweighs the devotion within us, it's time to move. I'll say it again, when the desire in front of us outweighs the devotion within us, it's time to move. Some of us, whether that's temptation and God's nudging you and we're just like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Or some of us get comfortable and we're like, you know what, I'm good. I don't want anything to change. This is exactly how I want it. I'm not gonna change anything because this is what I like and this is where I want and so I'm not moving, I'm not changing, I'm not doing anything different because this is comfortable. And if that's you, the desire in front of you is outweighing the devotion within you and it's time to move. In fact, this is our fourth key to a growing faith and that is faith moves. 
Faith is not stagnant. Faith moves. It moves when you're on the mountain and you don't want to move, and it moves in the valley when you don't think you can move. Faith moves because you have a God that protects you, a God that embraces you, a God that goes before you. And that's why Peter said, let's build shelters, because in his mind, oh, God is here, and he's got us. But Peter forgot something. It's temporary. Don't miss this. Let's build shelters and let's stay. It's temporary, Peter. We're not meant to stay here, and Moses and Elijah can't stay here. And so in that moment, watch what happens as the miracle continues. Take a look at Mark 9, 7 through 8. It says, then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, and God spoke And he said this, this is my son whom I love. You must listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except for Jesus. Everybody disappeared. Now why? Why did that happen like that? There's a couple of things. If you're falling asleep, I promise you, you need to lean in here because something amazing happened. You ready? Here's what happened. God spoke and said, this is my son whom I love. You must listen to him. God used the exact same words to fulfill a prophecy from long ago in the law of Moses because Moses told the people that in the future, God is going to raise up a prophet and we must listen to him. Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 18, take a look at this. It said, the Lord said to me, what they say is good and I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Jesus fulfilled that, and God allowed that to happen miraculously in front of Peter, James, and John. But notice what happened. Peter's like, yes, awesome, incredible, and then all of a sudden, poof, Moses and Elijah disappear. Why? Where did they go? Why didn't they hang out? Why couldn't we talk? I mean, come on, break bread, let's go. Here's why. Moses represented the law, as I told you before. And when Moses disappeared, it was symbolic that the law now is fulfilled. It is going to change because it now fulfilled. Elijah represented the prophet. Elijah calling out the Messiah. And with Elijah through John the Baptist, and now Elijah has now disappeared, it meant now Jesus Christ stands alone. We are in new times. And now, Jesus, you're going to be talking about your end game. And you're going to let everybody know your plan. Because now the Messiah has arrived. Powerful. Powerful. And let's watch what happens. As they were coming down, the mountain. Jesus gave them the orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. As the disciples were going down, they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead really meant. They still didn't understand. They still didn't get it. They still struggled with it, and they walk down the road. I close with this. There are many of us in this room where we just want to stay on that mountain, but do you notice what God did God allowed Peter, James, and John to see that moment. He allowed them to understand the significance, and he said to Jesus Christ, Jesus, I know you're human right now, and you're 100% God, and you're 100% human, and I know your humanity wants to hang up here with your father. Think about this. How many of you have not seen your parents, and you love them to death in 20 years, and all you do when you first see them is you embrace them, and you don't want to let them go? You ever been there? 
Jesus sees his father and he's up there and everything in Jesus, the human side of Jesus, I want to stay up here forever. There's Moses. I know Moses. I know Elijah. And there's my father. And I'd love to stay up here. But did you notice what God did? They disappeared. And then where did Jesus have to go? Don't miss this. Jesus then descended the mountain. And do you know what he walked into? He didn't walk into a roaring crowd waiting and loving him. He walked down into a mess. He walked down to the disciples arguing. He walked down to the people beginning to doubt whether Jesus has, has the power to heal anymore. It's as if God looked at Jesus and said, son, I love you, this is a great moment, but you gotta move. You gotta move. Because faith moves. And I have bigger plans. Some of you in this room who've been stuck for a long time, God is speaking into your heart, into my heart, and saying, you're too comfortable. You're on cruise control. It's time for you to take a step of faith. It's time for you to move. Because if you have strong faith, you move. And if you're stuck in a desert, and you're stuck in a valley, and you're losing hope, you need to remember the embrace of the Heavenly Father. And you have to have enough courage to take one more step of faith. Even when you feel as if you don't need to move the car up a few more feet. And the Holy Spirit nudges and said, you might want to listen. Maybe today's the day that you listen to that nudge and you begin to move. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this story. I thank you for the power that comes within, which is a reminder to all of us, God, not to get comfortable. So Father, I pray for the individuals in this room that are just checking church off their list. They're just walking in the doors and they're just saying, I've got to go because that's what I'm supposed to do. God, faith is so bigger, so much bigger than that. So I pray for the individual that is doing that today. I pray that you would open your heart and say, God, what is it you would have of me? What step do I need to take? What direction do I need to go? God, I want to have the courage to be able to move out of my comfortability. And for the individual in this room that is struggling, that is about to give up, that sees no hope, you need to remember that your God embraces you, is there for you, loves you, and to keep moving. Because you're not at the promised land yet, but it's coming. So Father, I thank you for the truths that have been presented. Bless them, use them, God, for your glory. We tell you we love you, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.